Welcome to the Agris Law Firm video podcast. We are a different kind of law firm and that's on purpose. At Agris Law Firm, we see you as a person and not just a client, and that makes us better at what we do. We're not just lawyers and you're not just a client. We're friends, neighbors, and family. This is a show about all things legal-ish that friends, neighbors, and family wanna know. This is season one, episode two, and today we're talking criminal law. Today's guest is Mark Galler, the owner of Mark Galler Law. Founded in November 2018, Mark focuses on criminal defense and civil litigation, primarily contract disputes and fraud. Mark, how are you? Great, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate uh, the invite here, and, and this is a really wonderful setup you have. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Um, so I just started doing this video podcast, and when I was thinking about doing it, I knew for sure I would have someone on early on to talk criminal law. Um, when I was in law school, I loved criminal law. I loved criminal procedure. Uh, my wife and I are total junkies for uh, Law and Order, Dateline. Um, I loved the documentary series um, Making a Murderer and the uh, Aaron Hernandez show uh, that also recently came out. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you do at your firm. Yeah, thank you, Mike. So uh, my firm has been uh, in existence since November 2018. I uh, primarily practice, and I'd say about 80% of my practice is criminal defense. I handle everything from simple traffic violations uh, up into including um, homicide and class X offenses, uh, everything in between. Um, I'd say the real nuts and bolts uh, of, of my practice would involve cases of um, uh, possession of, of firearms, illegal possession of a firearm, drug cases, um, and also uh, DUI practice as well. Okay. And I think you'd agree with me uh, that f I think criminal law and family law, and I'm sure there's other areas of law that are sort of their own separate animal, right? Um, so tell me the difference between a criminal case and a civil case. What's the difference? That's a great question, and, and a lot of times I get that even from my clients or people that don't really understand how criminal law works. Uh, so criminal law is initiated by uh, a, a victim of a, a criminal offense, um, something that, uh, they, they, someone that they were either harmed by uh, and they felt that they have been wronged, so they go to the police, they file a report or a complaint with, with their local police department, um, and then the police from there will initiate the proper procedure of filing a formal report. Uh, maybe if it's a felony level, they'll reach out to the local state's attorney's department Department, and they will um, look to see if the assistant state's attorney uh, that's in charge of maybe felony review thinks that there is enough evidence or, um, uh, pro or proper procedure to bring in a case uh, in front of either a grand jury or a, um, uh, a preliminary hearing, which is where the officers or other victims would come in to testify uh, or witnesses would testify if there's enough uh, probable cause to bring a case. So it's really where the government comes in and steps in to protect individuals who have been harmed, and they try to set an example for uh, for anyone else looking to commit a crime and saying, hey, if you do this, these are going to be the repercussions, and we're going to protect the citizens of our state or our government. Okay. And you just briefly touched on it as far as like the process from the time someone's arrested until trial. Walk me through all of the stages um, from what happens from day one until trial. 
Exactly. So it, there's there's a couple ways that the criminal case can be initiated. Uh, the, the crime could have already occurred and the individual might not have been caught yet. Okay. And so what often happens is if um, the victim has some idea of the identity of that individual, or maybe there's a, a video recording at a store location or from someone's cell phone, um, they will then try to track that individual down, uh, try to uh, at, look at the person's identity, um, if they can identify the person through, through visual quality or if they have a name, and then they'll issue an arrest warrant. And that is to bring in that individual to face the charges against them. Um, if they were arrested on the spot of committing the crime, say they, they were uh, trying to break into a phone store and the police were nearby, somebody saw them breaking in and they arrested them on the spot, um, then the formal charges would start at that point. Um, now, the way that the, the next step works is once you're arrested, um, they have a certain amount of time to uh, bring you in for a bond hearing. Typically, it's the next day. Um, if it's in the morning hours, they'll bring you in in the afternoon of the same day where you'll go in front of a judge uh, and try to get a bond set um, and hopefully be released from custody. Custody is where you, where you remain in the, the uh, protection of the police. Um, that's the first step. The second step then is they have to bring you in front of either a grand jury, which is uh, roughly 16 members of the community that'll hear evidence and testimony from witnesses, from police officers who will uh, basically explain to the jury under oath what they saw and uh, and try to prove that there is probable, the government will try to prove then through questioning that there's probable cause to bring a formal case against that individual. Um, Let me jump in there because sure. I've got a quick question about that. Um, is there always a grand jury depending on what type of charge, whether it's state or federal or if it's like a minor DUI? Or I don't know if you would consider that minor, but is there always a grand jury? Great question. No, it, it really it only applies to felony level cases, um, which is anything, uh, class four felony is the lowest level felony in Illinois. And that's because you can spend at least 365 at minimum, 366 days in jail or longer. Um, what separates a, a misdemeanor from a felony is simply that. Um, the highest level misdemeanor is misdemeanor A, and you could spend up to 365 days in jail there. Uh, what Cook County did specifically for the longest time was uh, they would go through a preliminary hearing which affords criminal defense attorneys like myself the opportunity to go into court with my client and then question the officer or witness under oath and then ultimately be able to argue to the judge that there is no probable cause to bring the case and try to get it dismissed at that point. But it's easier for the state now to just skip that step, bring the evidence and the officers into court and essentially feed them the questions that they need without opposition from somebody like me and their chances of getting uh, uh, the grand jury to indict the individual is extremely high. And once someone is indicted, uh, what is the next step? After they're indicted, uh, then if the individual is already in custody, then they have to go through an arraignment process. And that's where they are brought into court. They're formally read the charges that are being brought against them. Um, they're told the possible uh, punishment and uh, um, uh, jail time that they could, have, uh, that they could face. And from there, um, after that arraignment takes place, now you're in a full-fledged case. Got it. And during the full-fledged case, I know what it's like in a, a civil case when you go through the discovery process. You answer interrogatories or questions, you turn over documents, parties sit for depositions. And um, I want to know what's the difference in that discovery phase uh, in a criminal case 
right? Like, are there depositions? Do you answer written discovery? How does that work? Yes, absolutely. The very first thing, at least I do, and most I would say most attorneys do uh, in the criminal setting, is they file right away a motion for discovery, and it's a it's a multi-page document where you're seeking certain pieces of evidence. Um, and while it's the state's responsibility and the government's responsibility to prove their case, you want to try to collect all the evidence you can to maybe find pieces of evidence that are missing or that uh, part of an investigation that wasn't done correctly, and then you can use that in your defense. And there's certain items that we wouldn't have to turn over, even with the state asking us for particular materials, we wouldn't have to turn over to them to use at a trial unless we were actually going to use that at trial. So there's a little bit of leverage that is, is provided to the defense side. Um, but uh, yeah, immediately you file the motion for discovery and you start collecting evidence. And I try to tell my clients that that could take a while, uh, depending on the county you're in, especially and, and the judge you're in front of, they might have certain deadlines uh, and they set out a, a clear schedule for you right off the bat um, in terms of when this should, when uh, production of discovery should be completed by. And then from there, you're looking at what you have and what you can use and you potentially start doing motion practice and whether or not you need to bring in people for evidentiary depositions or you need to deal with experts. Uh, it could open up the floodgates depending on the type of case and the documents and evidence that are being produced. Got it. In a civil case, you can take a deposition of a witness. How does it work in a criminal case? If you have a witness and you want to get their testimony, what would be the next step? Absolutely. So what you could do is there's several avenues. Uh, you can use uh, utilize the services of a private investigator. If your client um, has the funds and the means to do that, it's not always necessary. Uh, in more egregious cases, when you start getting up to the higher level felony cases or uh, cases where your client is, is being wrongfully accused, um, and I would highly recommend that in certain circumstances, absolutely. Um, so that's one way where you can try to get witness statements uh, and eventually maybe bring those in by way of an affidavit later on because an affidavit then is a sworn statement uh, that's notarized, it becomes official. Um, or you could bring them in for evidentiary depositions, which is where they uh, would be giving testimony under oath, which then you can use at trial, uh, even if you bring them in as a witness to testify during a trial. Okay. And after that discovery process or phase is done um, and you approach trial, uh, what happens or what are some things that go on typically before trial and your trial date? That's, excuse me, that's when things start moving pretty quickly. Once discovery is completed, and depending on whether or not you have... Um, motions to file, and I keep saying motions, for example, um, say you have a, a gun case, right? And by gun case, I mean um, uh, illegal possession of a firearm. Maybe they don't have their FOID card and they were walking around with a firearm and an officer spotted that and they weren't supposed to have this firearm on them. Um, depending on whether the officer conducted the stop properly, um, there could be motion to suppress evidence which is what's done most often in drug or gun cases to try to um, show that there maybe wasn't probable cause or a reason for the officer to approach that individual. And if they hadn't approached that individual, they wouldn't have found the firearm. So you're trying to remove that firearm as evidence from the case because then if the government doesn't have that piece of evidence, it makes it much more difficult, sometimes impossible, to prove their case moving forward at trial. Okay. You bring up something interesting uh, that I wanted to ask you. Um, if you're, so I look at part of this, we're gonna talk criminal law, the procedure, how it all works, and then I also am thinking of general questions that people always ask me, uh, friends, family, neighbors, stuff like that. And you just mentioned someone you know, being stopped and they've got a, uh, uh, there's a search, the police uh, take over the gun and whether or not that can come in at trial. Um, if a police officer stops you, should you talk to them? 
I always like to say, no, don't, don't talk to them. You, you be respectful. Absolutely. You acknowledge their presence. Um, you could be cordial like you and I talking right now and you can have a normal conversation with them, give them your name, the basic information. Um, but if they start getting into details about the case, uh, I'm sorry about, um, you know, what you're doing there, uh, you, or, or, you know, why you're sitting in your parked car, you don't need to, to, to directly respond to that. It, it, it creates, the more you speak to an officer, the more you give them, the more evidence that's is supplied to them to use in the case uh, if it's brought against you. And at what point during that conversation, uh, this is sort of, this is a twofold question. So what are your Miranda rights? And at what point during that conversation, if you do decide to talk to the police, are the police required to read you your Miranda rights? Absolutely. So <clears throat> if I give an example, it might make it a little bit more clear for those that might understand the procedure. So uh, let's say uh, we're dealing with a, a driving under the influence, a DUI case. All right. Um, say you're sitting in a parked car, you're in a Target parking lot, you're lawfully parked between the lines, your car is off and, and you're, you're hanging out in your car. Maybe you have a friend with you um, and, and you're, just, you're just sitting there. Um, and an officer approaches your vehicle um, and at that point, in your mind, you've done nothing wrong, right? So the officer says, hey, what are you guys, why are you sitting here? What are you doing? You're not doing anything illegal unless there's maybe a signpost that says you shouldn't be here past 10 o'clock. But say it's midday on a Tuesday when the stores are open, you're doing nothing wrong. You, you, you have to at least answer the officers, but if they start saying, have you been drinking, have you been doing this, you're doing that, you, you respectfully decline to answer any questions because what happens at that point is um, you start opening the door and they, they, or the window and they might start smelling an odor of alcohol and now they're going to start using that information and then they're going to start using their standard language of he's got bloodshot glassy eyes, an odor of alcohol upon his breath. Now, next thing you know, you're going to admit to drinking a beer or two. While that isn't illegal, it's now providing more and more information to the officer that you were drinking. They're going to start asking if you've been driving, where you came from, and you, you might, out of instinct, answer where you came from, right? Now he's got you out of the car asking you to do field sobriety tests, which are tested to, to determine for the officer if there's probable cause to arrest you for, um, for a driving under the influence charge. Now to answer your question, it's, it's a subjective, uh, it's an objective question really whether the, uh, a person in a similar situation and the officer in that situation would think that, uh, that the person has either committed a crime or was about to commit a crime. And that's when they can arrest you if that's the case. If those elements are met and you're arrested, any questioning after that that isn't voluntarily, there should be Miranda rights read. And the other part of your question was what are Miranda rights? The second part of that is, um, there's, there's five Miranda rights that I'm sure everybody's heard, right? Uh, you have a right to an attorney. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Um, you have a right to uh, uh, counsel with you if an attorney can't be, uh, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided uh, for you. Um, so at that point, if they're questioning you and you're under arrest, that becomes a, a, a constitutional issue, right? Um, and so if they haven't read you Miranda rights and they start asking questions, that's where that issue comes into play. I was going to ask you this later on, but you brought it up with the drinking, driving example. If you've been drinking and you think you're over the legal limit and you do get pulled over, what should you do? Well, uh, if you had one of my business cards, <laughs> I, I actually have on the back, <laughs> uh, your rights. And, and again, it goes back to being respectful. Always be respectful of the police. They're doing their job. They're trying to ensure the safety of yourself and others. And if you know you've been drinking, if you know you've had too many, you, and they're going to be asking you've been drinking, and I can't tell you to lie, 
but you don't want to answer those questions. So you respectfully decline to answer the questions. Um, or if you had a business card similar to mine, you hand that to the officer. And then if you don't even speak, then they can't start using some of this evidence saying, oh, I smelled an odor of alcohol. Well, they wouldn't be able to smell an odor of alcohol in your breath if you weren't actually talking to the officer, right? I mean, you'd presume unless somehow uh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're opening up your mouth um, and, and that an odor is actually coming out. Um, but uh, you would respectfully decline field sobriety tests. You respectfully decline all that. And that's where it's going to get a little scary. They're going to arrest you. All right. They're going to take you into custody and uh, they're going to take you to the station. You're going to be sitting at the police station for a while and they still might ask you to do certain things. Uh, but if you don't give them the opportunity to collect that evidence, you're not obstructing justice. If you're complying with them, if you if you respectfully uh, are, are placed uh, in custody and taken to the station, nothing's going to happen uh, except the case of uh, driving in inf- under the influence. But then they don't have any evidence against you besides maybe what your eyes looked like. Maybe if you had a, 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 a sway in your in your uh, walk to the car, a little gate, something that might be off. That's all they have. They don't have the, the foolproof evidence to try to uh, bring a DUI case against you. I remember in law school, there was a difference between regarding Miranda rights. There was a difference in saying, uh, I want to be silent and I want a lawyer. I don't know if that distinction still applies now or the case law applies, but is it, would it be, you know, sure in an ideal world, if someone gets pulled over and they have your business card and they can pull it out without saying anything and show it to an officer, that would probably be your ideal situation. Uh, I would imagine that doesn't happen often. So (laughs) you get pulled over, you know, you're drunk. Um, Can you simply say, I want my lawyer? I've heard that that's the four magic words you should say, is I want my lawyer. Would you agree with that? It, 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 I wish it worked that simply, but yes. I mean, then it invokes another uh, uh, constitutional right of yours, right? The right to an attorney. But uh, at that point, I mean, you're, you're not under arrest. There isn't a cr- criminal proceeding against you. So unless you were under arrest, then that, that uh, uh, invocation of your right, invo- invocation of your right um, would come into play. But at that certain moment, the officer is going to be like, okay, great, you know, but I'm still going to have to get you out of the car. And then they could still ask you, because uh, at that point, if you're not under arrest, having an attorney present isn't going to do anything. So what you could, you need to respectfully decline it, let them place you under arrest. And then that's when you say, you know, I want to speak to my lawyer. So you simply say, when they start asking you, have you been drinking? You say, what would you say? I would, I mean, me personally, I would say I, I respectfully decline to answer any questions. Uh, and you could just keep saying, I, I'd like to, I want my lawyer. Sometimes I've heard with police officers that that might, uh, depending on how you say it, again, be respectful. Um, it, it might smooth things over if you, if you try to refrain from saying that without, just don't simply answer the questions. Just say, I respectfully decline to answer the questions. Got it. Let's move on to search, uh, searches and seizures. What's a search and seizure? What's required? Um, do you always need a warrant? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, perfect, perfect. And we could tie that back into, uh, uh, let's say, an unlawful possession of a firearm. Uh, and and you're, you're in a motor vehicle that's involved in a traffic stop, uh, that the officers engage in a traffic stop. Um, so you have a constitutional right to uh, protection from illegal searches and seizures by uh, persons of authority, right? Whether that's uh, a Cook County Sheriff or a Chicago police officer or an officer in your area. Um, you have a protection and security from just invasion of those rights. And so what that means is the only time you can you could be, uh, well, there's, there's really three ways that uh, an officer has the right, a uh, constitutional right to search, let's say your vehicle. Say you're speeding down a road and um, they, they, they clock you going 85 and a 55. They pull you over for, for speeding and um, 
nothing else is going going wrong. Um, and if they say, can I search your car? And you say no, and they start searching your car, well, this is when these constitutional rights come into effect. So there has there's there's two different ways that this that this could come into play. The first is uh, is called a Terry stop. Uh, that's kind of the the the, the slang uh, legalese sort of term that uh, an officer has to see that um, uh, they reasonably thought a crime was being committed or that um, it had been committed. Uh, it's an investigatory stop where they're just trying to make sure um, that it, the person they're talking to is either an actual suspect uh, of, of a crime committed or um, they've heard that this person was involved in a crime and they're just trying to make sure that, that they arrest the right person. Um, when you get into um, probable cause to do uh, a more thorough search of a vehicle like the speeding um, uh, car or the car that had sped and they're searching the car for a firearm, um, they would have to have some sort of um, reasonable articulable suspicion that, that they either saw this firearm or somebody maybe called in a 911 report and said, hey, this guy was waving a gun at me, here's his license plate, here's his car. That would rise potentially to the level that the officers can now search your vehicle um, because they have this eyewitness testimony um, or if they saw the gun in person, same, same situation. That'll give them enough probable cause Things to know that there's uh, that there could be more in the vehicle that they can actually end up searching the entire vehicle. Okay, and while we're talking about searching cars, I remember from law school I thought something that was interesting is uh, searching apartments, because you're oftentimes dealing with uh, significant others, roommates, who has authority. So, um, who can give permission to search an apartment, and in particular when you're dealing with multiple people living there? You could have a minor child, you could have a significant other, you could have a roommate. So how does that work? Police shows up, the police officer shows up and they wanna search your apartment. Who can consent to that? That's a great question. Uh, a lot of times people do with live with other uh, roommates, so maybe one, two, three or four other roommates. Um, or they have, like you said, their significant other over. Um, and so if obviously if it's your apartment or if it's your house, you can certainly give permission to search. Um, but if you have roommates that have that are part of a lease and everybody's on the lease, um, or maybe they're paying you for rent, the, you can ask, you can allow the police to go in to search at least your room and then the common areas. But if your roommate's door is locked and the, the officers have no reason to believe that specifically that individual has done anything wrong or illegal, um, you can't give permission to the police to search anyone else's room. Um, but there's there's a common mistake with with the communication and, and maybe how much control they have over these um, different areas uh, of the apartment if it's not your room um, if it's your significant other for example and say they're just visiting and you're in the back of a squad car and she's and then the officer says to he or she yeah go ahead go you I, I live here you know go visit go uh, go search the house it's all yours that's where a constitutional issue can come into play whether or not that person actually had authority to do so um, and in that particular circumstance, uh, that, that would not be the case. Okay. Let's, um, let's talk about, um, let's talk about, I guess what I would consider some sort of just like general, uh, legal terms that people have maybe heard that they don't know about. Uh, so what's a bench warrant? A bench warrant is typically issued by a judge. Um, if an individual who maybe has a bond in place, um, fails to show up to court. And it's the way that a judge can control the individual um, by 
use of their uh, the, the county's sheriff's department to go out and say this person is in direct violation of of the court order. They were supposed to be in court today. They didn't show up. I'm issuing a bench warrant. Um, and let's say that's a $25,000 D amount. What that means is then that um, the sheriffs are going to go uh, affect uh, or um, take control of that warrant to go try to track down that individual and they can place them under arrest. And now the only way they get out of custody typically is if they can pay 10% of that $25,000. So $2,500. Um, or if they have an attorney uh, or an excuse, maybe a medical uh, emergency took place and an attorney came in and filed uh, a motion to quash and recall that warrant, then they can avoid having to pay the 10% fee before getting out of custody. What's the difference between bail and bond? Bail and bond are, are, are pretty synonymous. synonymous. Um, the, the difference would be um, bond is where maybe say you've got a, a bail bonds company that uh, an individual can't afford a bond to pay a bond uh, or a bail um, by themselves. They can go to a company that'll post that bond on their behalf and, and they would have to supply some sort of um, item of value. Maybe it's a title to a vehicle, uh, something uh, of actual value to, to um, that the title company can hold on to to, to issue the bond. Uh, but really, it's the same thing. It's it's the amount that's set by a court, by a judge, that is going to either ensure that uh, that's going to ensure that you show up to court, um, and it's kind of a security that that'll keep you coming back. Got it. And if you don't come back, what ha what happens to that money? Uh, the money could be forfeited. Um, so there's there's times where clients just disappear. And you don't hear from them again, and you try to explain to the judge that you've reached out to the individual. They've come to court for a year and a half, and now all of a sudden you can't get a hold of them. And um, then there's a uh, they, the judge will, will give them an opportunity to appear in court one more time. Say it's two weeks out uh, from the date that that warrant was issued, the bench warrant. You come to court in two weeks. Your client's still not there. Now the judge is going to enter um, a judgment for bond forfeiture, which means then that there's that final date. If they don't show up on that final date, then your bond is forfeited and it goes to the county. I've seen uh, in the news recently, there seems to be a lot of uh, news stories in Illinois and particularly nationally dealing with uh, cash bail um, and people who can't afford it, who are sitting in jail waiting for their trial date, especially for nonviolent acts. So tell me a little bit about what this reform is and what people are trying to do to change it. In other words, it seems like if you have money to post bail, you don't have to wait for your trial date in jail. But if you don't, you sit there and wait. And I've, I've read articles, I couldn't give you any numbers or statistics right now, but it seems like there's a lot of people sitting in jail for nonviolent offenses who simply can't post bail or get a bond to get out. So what is, and I don't know how new it is, but what's this movement and why is it getting so much attention? That's a really great question, uh, and 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 bond money was the way that a lot of attorneys would set up contractual uh, agreements with their clients on how to get paid, um, and it was a way for individuals who were able to post bond to then pay their attorneys maybe down the road or, or whatever that agreement might be, um, and those amounts used to be um, be higher, and, and the counties were trying to get uh, defendants to post the cash bonds, and that was the only form of payment. And so the way that it has been going now, and the reason it's become such a, a kind of a contentious issue and a topic is because you have um, some, uh, and I know we're, we were talking about nonviolent offenders, but you have some violent offenders that are getting lenient bonds now because the, the, the government has kind of shifted uh, in policy in terms of making sure that 
it's not based on a monetary consideration for somebody to be able to post bond. They should, they should look at the totality of the circumstances that maybe their education, if they're going to school, if they're working, if they have a family, who they have to really provide for. And so now you've got this mix of, is the bond appropriate for somebody in a nonviolent offense or if there is, it is a violent offense um, and if they're able to get out, but they're lowering the bond amounts and that's creating an issue because now you've got individuals who maybe are going out committing another offense. Now they're facing a violation of their first bail bond. Maybe they had an I bond. An I bond is where you're released on your own recognizance. You don't have to pay to get out. You're just released right away after the arrest process is complete. And then they go out and they, they, they uh, pick up another case or two. Um, and so the issue is, and a lot of maybe uh, police departments argue that that shouldn't be the case, that the bond amounts need to be higher, they need to be more strict so that we can make sure that um, these repeat offenders aren't going out and, and, and committing more crimes. So that's where the issue is. Right. And I think the, the main concern and I, what I keep reading in the news is that these people are, can't afford a bond and they're in jail on a, on a nonviolent charge. Do you think eventually cash bonds will go away for, say, first-time offenders with nonviolent charges in Illinois? Like, what do you think it'll look like in 10 years? I, I think it's trending that way. I think you're exactly right, Mike. And, and a lot of judges um, are really good at looking at that specific information, especially for nonviolent offenders. They're going to give you a chance. You have to prove to them, and, and especially if, if your attorney or public defender who, who uh, is handling the case um, is is adamant about explaining your background and why you should get a, a, an I bond um, as a nonviolent offender and, and a first-time offender, um, I think your chances are, are very, very great where you won't have to post a monetary bond. And I think that's that trend is going to continue, um, uh, and it will keep diminishing, I believe. Okay. Let's move on to expungement. What is it? How does someone expunge their criminal record? How does it work? And do you do it? Do you help clients do that? I do. Yes. Yes. So there, there's expungement and there's sealing. Um, expungement is is the ultimate goal of individuals. And typically, there, there's numerous requirements, but typically if there's a conviction involved, um, you're not necessarily able to expunge your record. Um, if you are able to expunge your record, um, say it's it's for maybe a, a petty drug offense uh, in today's day and age, right? With, with marijuana being legal in Illinois, there's numerous requirements for what and how uh, your, your potential convictions or arrests and how they can be expunged. But when you're success, successful in getting it expunged, the file's essentially de de deleted. It's, it's torn up, it's thrown away, and you're not able to track it down. I've actually tried to do this for um, some clients that have had records expunged in the past, and now they're trying to get particular licenses, and um, at least I have not been able to find, and I've talked to numerous agencies all the way up uh, to high-level FBI agencies, seeing if we can track down this information. So whether or not they're, they, they do keep this information, I have not found a single shred of successful expungements. So if you can get that, that's wonderful. Um, Sealing is also another great step. Uh, that's essentially where any most uh, non-government entities um, cannot see that you've had a prior conviction if you meet certain requirements for your case to be sealed. And you lawfully can say that you have not been convicted of a crime if you have that case sealed. Um, the only way you can get that unsealed is by court order. You have to file a particular motion and the judge has to unseal that uh, file, which then can be seen. Um, that typically doesn't happen for individuals looking for uh, employment unless it's with a government agency or, of course, some sort of law enforcement. So how does someone determine if they should try to get their record expunged or get something sealed? Can everyone do it or 
How does that work? Absolutely. Yeah. I, at least try to call your attorney. Could call your local uh, expungement attorney, criminal defense attorney, any attorney that handles those uh, those types of um, issues will be able to inform you in a matter of a, a few minutes. Um, if it's not clear, then that attorney, or if you can provide them with the case information of, of the, the case you're trying to expunge or seal, they can look that up in the system, go to the courthouse, and then get an answer for you with a few minutes. And if you are trying to look for a job and you do have a felony conviction, um, numerous statutes and, uh, or I should just say, uh, uh, cases that you might have a conviction for can be um, at least sealed, and a lot of them can be expunged. It's really worth looking into, um, and especially with now with uh, marijuana being legal in, in, in Illinois. There's been thousands of convictions um, for possession of marijuana back in the day. And now with this case being in effect, you can get um, effectively, and there are certain uh, requirements, automatic expungements for at least the arrest if it was under if you were under, under possession of uh, 30 grams of marijuana and um, the case is at least a year old um, and you weren't um, you hadn't you know delivered the the marijuana to um, people that were at least three years younger than you um, so the way that the government has set this up now the state of Illinois is they'll offer automatic expungements for those arrests um, but the rollout dates are quite far so if you want to do it for free, um, that's one way to do it, uh, if it's just for the arrest. So it could take up to one to five years, depending on how long ago your conviction was, um, for the government to actually start rolling out the expungements. If you were convicted of possession of, uh, of uh, marijuana, and it was 30 grams or less, and when you meet the other requirements, um, now what happens is, they have to go through the uh, parole board. Um, a petition has to be filed, and then there has to be a pardon with by the, the the governor. And then the governor has to uh, submit certain paperwork to the different entities, um, and and that could take uh, even longer than what uh, the the one to five time years uh, time year frame could be. Okay, and I wanted to talk to you uh, about this uh, about marijuana is now legal in Illinois as of January first, twenty twenty. You would mention that you can possess, what was it, under, well, tell me, how much can you possess as an uh, individual person in Illinois yes. without getting in trouble? Yeah, good question, <laughs> good question. So you can legally possess under 30 grams of, of actual marijuana buds. Um, I believe it's uh, 500 milligrams if it's edibles, um, and then even a smaller amount if it's uh, a concentrate of THC. Um, and you can lawfully carry that in your house. You can't grow marijuana unless you have a medical marijuana license. Um, and, and this new law actually created um, uh, an interesting issue too with, uh, with Illinois also allowing um, concealed carry license. So if you have a concealed carry license or your FOID card, while well, the federal government does, hasn't recognized marijuana as a lawful drug, it's still illegal federally. So there's an interesting question now if these states are allowing um, uh, the the purchase and owning of uh, marijuana, will that affect your um, FOID card or your concealed carry license? And the technical answer is yes. I mean, technically it could be revoked. And that's something people need to really be careful about. Um, and obviously, um, if you carry the marijuana outside of your home and uh, you're driving around with it, it needs to be in a, a concealed compartment somewhere that's not easily accessible. So anytime you're carrying alcohol or now marijuana, you want to keep it in your trunk. Keep it simple. Just keep it as far away. You don't need to have it in your in your front seat. You don't need to have it in your center console. There's no reason. Obviously, you can't smoke and drive, uh, and, and that's also going to create new complications with um, with now lawful searches of cars, 
when a car could be searched if an officer smells marijuana, it's going to create a whole new string of case laws that will be coming down in the next couple of years. Yeah, and that was something else I was going to ask you. I think it's interesting, you know, if you've been drinking and you get pulled over, uh, you know, I think most people can smell alcohol from a mile away. Um, you know, let's say you're at your house, you get high, and an hour later you hop in your car and go pick up a pizza or whatever you're going to do, right? I, I, I sort of see the issues that officers may have in this situation where, you know, I leave work at the end of a long day, I've had my contacts in all day, and someone may look at me and think, like, you're high based on glossy eyes and bloodshot and so on and so forth. So uh, how is that going to work with people who are pulled over and officers think that they are high, um, but they don't smell anything, they don't see anything, there's nothing on them? I mean, have, have you run into this yet with your clients? Uh, to me, it seems like it's going to be a little bit of a cluster. Absolutely. And it really is. It's much easier to look at somebody um, in, a, in a setting where they might be suspected of a DUI um, and, and do proper procedures for that because you, 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 are, you do get that slurred speech or you, some individuals can develop slurred speech or they, they might wobble a little bit more when they walk or they're falling over. It's more unlikely for somebody if they're high or under the influence of THC to, to exude the same sort of symptoms as somebody in a DUI. So to answer your question, it, it's, it's, it's going to take some cutting-edge technology, at least in terms of if they can develop some sort of portable breath test like they do for to the detection of alcohol in someone's breath, if they could do something like that um, in a portable setting without having to draw your blood um, to detect a THC level. Um, now, there, there is a certain limit that you, you, you can have in your system at the time you're driving. And it depends on how many hours you smoke. It depends on body weight. I mean, you're getting more into like a scientific level of, of what's appropriate um, in driving. It's much more rare for somebody to, to face a um, driving under the influence of, of a substance than it is for uh, alcohol. Um, it, it's, it's really um, hard to prove. And now with it being pro se legal, Meaning that just because uh, you smell like weed doesn't give an officer probable cause just to search your car. Now, if they see that you're carrying weed and it's right on top of your dashboard, well, now you're violating the statute um, and that might be able to open the door for the officers to, to search the car. So you want to try to avoid that, obviously. Um, similar to with the new gun laws that came out not too long ago. Right. Just because somebody um, might, if an officer sees a, a firearm in, in your coat jacket, while that is lawfully being concealed and maybe the wind blew it open for a second it's not pro se illegal to have a gun okay so that doesn't mean the officer can just come to you and start searching and patting you down they would need to ask proper questions right do you have a void card do you have a concealed carry um and, and it doesn't just open the door for the officers to do uh anything they like and same thing with marijuana now got it and i think what's interesting about marijuana and maybe that's um i find challenging is it's legal in certain states like in Illinois, but it's not federally legal. So what type of situation could someone get in trouble possessing marijuana legally in the state of Illinois, but because they may be in a federal building or on federal grounds? You know, for example, you can't show up to O'Hare with marijuana, right? Because the airport's federal property. So what can you explain this distinction and you know the difference between it being legal in a state and not being legal federally and where people could run into issues although they're still in Illinois? That's a great question and it does apply to people visiting these types of states as well. Um, we, Illinois is now the 11th state that has fully legalized marijuana. 
Um, so if you're visiting a state like Illinois, Colorado, um, California, you, you're, you're, ability to purchase and, and maintain weed is, is different than the actual citizens of that state. And so the way you can get in trouble and to answer your question, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly, is um, obviously you can't bring a little baggie of, of, of weed on a plane with you, otherwise you're, now you're, you're, you're violating uh, state and federal law. Um, you can't just smoke in public. Um, there has to be certain um, areas that you can smoke. So some dispensaries might allow you to maybe test their product or they might have a smoking lounge. And if everything's uh, uh, licensed properly, that's fine. Um, but you can't go into a place of amusement like a bar or a restaurant and smoke, um, even if um, they, they might sell it there, if it's at least a place for amusement like that, that's, that's not allowed. Um, you can't smoke in a park. You can only smoke in your own residence. Um, if you are renting and there's a landlord, you need permission from the landlord. That's something that, that you might not think about, um, but that's very important. And, and it might be kind of awkward to, to ask your landlord, hey, you know, can I can I smoke in my own apartment? So those are things you're unable to do. Um, so once you start stepping into the federal grounds of of uh, of like a, of an airport and you have are in possession of what is legal in a state setting, that's where you're going to get in trouble because now you're 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 kind of crossing state lines into federal territory. Right. And so, for example, could you walk into a post office that's in Illinois carrying a legal amount of weed, where if you were uh, where it's legal to carry in the state of Illinois, but now you're in a post office, which is a federal building. And so then does it become illegal in that building? It does. It, it wouldn't become federal. You wouldn't be crossing the lines of, of a federal offense. It still would be a state offense. But um, like a firearm, there's certain places and restrictions on where you can carry it. Same thing with alcohol, right? You can't just carry around open alcohol where you please. So if you walked into post office with a bottle of open alcohol, now you've got problems. Same thing with, with, uh, with marijuana. Um, you're, you you got to keep it in a concealed compartment in your car, um, or if you're going somewhere else, you need to, to plan the transportation for that accordingly. Okay. I want to switch gears and talk about when police can interview or question minors. Uh, we talked at the top of the podcast about uh, making a murderer, and we were talking actually about Brendan Dassey before we started rolling the cameras. Yes, yes. How he was questioned and he was a minor. And then um, recently in Illinois, there is a new law that I want to talk to you about dealing with Corey Walgren. Okay. Um, and so I, I think that's all, um, it seems like this new law in Illinois now and it, the making a murderer, it seems like this idea of when police can question minors, who needs to be present, do they need their rights read? So. Um, tell me what the law is and tell me why this is becoming such a hot topic. And, um, you know, if you know about the uh, Corey Walgren case, if you could talk a little bit about that. I find that super interesting after watching Making a Murderer and then things that have gone on recently um, in Illinois about um, when you can interrogate a minor, who needs to be present, and what are the rules. And those are the, the, the answers can be quite convoluted. Uh, I'll try to keep it as, as simple as possible sure. because. It's it's a very tricky situation, and most people think that you can't, the police can't engage in a conversation with the minor um, at all, and that's simply not the case. So let's start with the Corey Walgren case, uh, which effectively created some new laws, um, at least for the school setting. So if you're on school grounds and um, you're suspected of committing some sort of crime or violation of school code or or, or um, something's going on where they think you've committed some sort of a, uh, illegal activity. 
the officer, maybe if there's a, an officer with the school uh, or they call in a police department, they cannot question you on school grounds without a parent being present. And that also leads to the next point. If you're not on school grounds and an officer wants to question you and you're underage, um, it's under 16, 16 and younger, they would have to uh, break it down whether maybe it's a, a misdemeanor or a felony, and that depends on the age range. So um, if they are suspecting you of either of those, and, and we can get into the, the age differences later, um, they at least need to uh, make a, a reasonable attempt to contact either your guardian or your parents. Um, so what what's reasonable is always open for interpretation with with most of these um, types of issues in law. Whether you know there's there's probable cause, whether the officer had reasonable suspicion, that's where the factual issues come into play. Um, and so if you are um, suspected of committing a crime, that I'm sure they'll ask you, hey, do you have mom or dad's number, maybe grandma, somebody? Um, can you give us their number and we can try to call them? They have to make a reasonable attempt. Um, and hopefully they log that properly. If not, that might create issues uh, and whether or not the questioning was done uh, in violation of their constitutional rights. Um, so the, the, the Logren case, though, was, was quite sad, uh, really a tragic case. The individual was suspected of uh, possessing um, underage uh, child pornography. Um, which can happen even if you're underage yourself, and a lot of people don't know that. You could be 15, you could be in possession of, of um, some uh, uh, provocative pictures of another underage individual, individual and you could be facing um, charges for underage uh, uh, child pornography. And that's what this individual, uh, Mr. Walgren, was facing at that time. He was 16 years old. Um, the school officer was questioning him about it, saying, we know you have these pictures, why do you have these pictures? Um, and the student um, ended up running out of the building, slipped away, and jumped off a parking space and killed himself. Um, and obviously the parents were shocked. The school officer or the, uh, the principal, nobody tried to contact the parents at all, um, which is absolutely absurd. They didn't even give a reasonable attempt. And now you're on school grounds, which should be a little bit even more protected because those individuals are there to ensure a safe ground for students to attend school at, right? They're the most vulnerable individuals, typically uh, other than obviously certain specified classes of, of people. Um, but um, they're, 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 they're young, they don't know any better. Um, so this law effectively changed that by because his parents really pushed for change. They, they filed civil lawsuits, they really pushed for legislation change, and that became effective. And now they, they, children can't be questioned on school grounds without a parent present or guardian. What would you, if you had a teenage kid, uh, what would you tell them? What would be your advice if you're stopped by the police, you're pulled over, you did something wrong at school and you're getting questioned? You know, like we were talking about earlier when the police pull you over and you've been drinking, what you're supposed to say. What would you advise a teenager to say in those situations? Should they say, contact my parents, I don't want to talk to you? What would you say in that situation? I would always ask to contact my parents, um, and and you tell you know, hey, I'm 16, I'm 15, I'm 17. Uh, you know, contact my parents, uh, and, and if you are at that age where you're 17, 18 years old, um, and, and if you're going to want to try, you can still ask for your parents. Um, but then at that point, if you if you realize you have rights to have an attorney present, you want to try to kind of say what we talked about before um, or respectfully decline to answer the questions. Then once you're arrested, you, then you, you know, you, you get your right to, to contact an attorney. Um, uh, but yeah, if you're underage, you always contact and tell the, the, the um, official or school personnel, I want to talk to my parents or my legal guardian. Sounds good. The last topic I want to talk about is DNA. 
I was watching I was watching a movie with my wife recently. It's actually a docu-series, and I, the name is slipping me, but it, it dealt with um, whether or not people who are arrested are required to give their DNA. And I think most people are used to, when you get arrested, you go to the station, they take your fingerprints, that's put into a database. Um, but the show I was watching was now talking about, okay, can they DNA swab you? So I find that interesting because I think there's all sorts of privacy issues and um, they obviously use the DNA to run it through a bank to see what else, what other crimes you're associated with. So what is, uh, what's the current law on uh, taking a DNA swab? Uh, does it matter if someone's just arrested, not convicted? Um, how does it work? So that, that's also a very heavy question too. <laughs> and I, I've been dealing with a lot of very contentious um, litigation through motion to suppress illegal blood draws that I'm arguing are unconstitutional, and this deals around um, DUIs, uh, where somebody's suspected of DUI, and they weren't involved in an accident, no one was injured, um, and the individual was found unresponsive in a vehicle, and um, next thing you know, the officers have paramedics arrive, and they take them to the hospital, and they're drawing blood. But by that point, the person was conscious, was able to communicate with hospital personnel and there's absolutely no reason that the hospital should be uh, taking um, the blood of the individual and then telling the officers this person has above the legal limit of alcohol in their system, um, even after the conversion. Um, and some of the case law is starting to change with that respect. Um, to answer questions specifically about DNA swabs, it depends on the, the type of um, charges against you and the severity. So if it's like criminal sexual assault or homicide, uh, you can object to it if you're in custody and they say, hey, we need to take your DNA. You could say no. Um, I've had clients now starting to get punished um, within um, certain facilities. Uh, but the proper procedure is for the government to file a motion to uh, ask the court um, to allow uh, a DNA collection of a sample from from the from the accused, from the defendants. Um, and it's granted almost 100 percent of the time. Um, unless there's there's certain um, uh, issues or illegality of, of police conduct or something that maybe causes that 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 separation of why the DNA should be taken, but if if the if the charge is serious enough, like criminal sexual assault, then it's it's pretty much like clockwork. You can get uh, uh, DNA swapped for it because then they need to compare it for maybe some DNA samples that they've collected through evidence at the scene uh, on the suspected uh, victim. Um, and then, yeah, that'll stay in the system at least until the outcome of the case. And that's where it could change. Got it. And I guess my question is this. So the way I understand it, everyone who's rested and booked, they give their fingerprints, fingerprints right? Fingerprints, yep, absolutely. Okay. So I, I think what's interesting about this is, is it now everyone who's rested and booked, is it fingerprints and a DNA swab? Or is it not that clear cut? Like, in other words, if I went and vandalized a building and was arrested and brought to the station, they'd take my fingerprints, right? Yes. Would they take my DNA? Not at that time. Not, not, in the, not legally at that time, no. It, you, have to, you have to meet a certain requirement of the level of, uh, of charges against you. So again, it would, you'd have to be charged with something more severe than just um, burglary or defacing a building, uh, theft, or DUI for the, for the most part. You'd have to meet the certain exceptions um, and that would rise to the level of a higher um, uh, charge against you like a class X or class one if it's a sexual assault something like that Then that's when they're able to start collecting your DNA, but anything um, uh, There's there's a long list. It's hard to list them all but um, for 
say simple battery. Now they can't just come in and take your, your DNA. Okay. And I know I said that was going to be the last topic, but I've got one question in general um, that I think a lot of people would want to know, and then we're going to move on to some other non-legal stuff. When does someone need a criminal defense lawyer? At what point should someone say, I need a lawyer? That's also a great question. I get that asked all the time, and I, and I think it's a matter of comfort. Okay, What an attorney is able to do in a criminal setting is essentially provide a, a shield between law enforcement and the government and the individual you're trying to protect, like the suspected uh, uh, defendant. Um, and so my first question is that when I, when I ask clients this, if they're calling on behalf of somebody who is about to be questioned, maybe they've heard um, rumors that the police are looking for this individual for whatever reason, um, I ask, well, would it make you feel better to have an attorney there? Uh, because if you were to retain me, what I offer is uh, pre-retainer agreements, right? So what I do is I send, uh, I send a letter to the client, I set up a certain um, uh, uh, line of communication with them, or if I know there's detectives involved, I contact them immediately. I'll go to the police station right away. I'll let them know, hey, this is my client. If you need to, if you need to contact them, if you need to question them, please call me first. I'll be happy to, to work to bring them in. We could sit down, do what needs to be done on your end. Um, you know, but respectfully, we're not going to answer any questions. And that's where I can come in because now that invokes going back to the constitutional rights of when you should ask for a lawyer. When do you ask for a lawyer? Now, if you're being asked by detectives, I would always advise to try to have that uh, lawyer retained. If you know that they're coming to question you or if you know that you might be arrested soon, um, at least for me, that would provide some comfort. Um, other people would maybe want to wait until they're already arraigned and the case has already started. Um, it, it really, it really depends on the individual. Got it. I guess I, I watch these shows and like I said, I'm super interested in criminal law at the first job I had out of law school. Uh, there were two partners there. One partner did criminal defense and the other one did uh, personal injury and the personal injury partner took me under his wings. I still did a little bit of criminal defense work there. I loved it. Um, I would always talk about the cases with my girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now, about the criminal law cases. And I remember her telling me, she's like, I don't, she's like, if you had gone into criminal defense, I don't know how that would have made me feel. I don't, you know, I, who knows what would have happened, but I find it super interesting, but I find it interesting. I watch all these shows and I'm super paranoid. And I always tell her, like, to me, it seems like if you have the means to have a lawyer, you should always have a lawyer. Like I, I tell my wife, like if anything would ever happen to me and I joke, like even if you had nothing to do with it, don't talk to anyone. Right? Yes. I mean, there's, in other words, is there ever anything good that can come out of talking to the police or talking to an investigator? You think you're going you're gonna to be able to handle the situation until you start saying something that starts ringing bells in the investigator's mind or the officer's mind or the detective's mind, and now you've opened up the floodgates. Now you know they might be smelling blood, and maybe now they know who else to go talk to based on something you said. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with maybe anything you did, but now they know who to ask. And now maybe that person, no, I always say it's best to be respectful, to decline, to answer any questions. Even if you didn't do it, you have an attorney with you all the time. Get contact somebody, you know, just to have a card on you. You might not have to pay that individual just to get a card, but at least you have something on you so that if something does happen, you know who to call. And, and, and most times they'll, they'll be good. Um, I'm, I, if I get a call late at night, I'll be at the, the jail immediately. I put on a suit and tie. If it's 10 at night, I'll head there. And, and that's where I can, we can afford that protection. So absolutely hundred percent. Like you, you were joking 
in all these documentaries, it's always, you know, maybe the husband um, that, that murdered his wife or something, and, and uh, uh, they're claiming he did, but he, he actually didn't do it. They're, the first person they're going to look at is always the spouse, um, whether it's, you know, um, uh, uh, husband and wife, wife and wife, whoever that, that happened to, they're always going to look at the spouse first. All right. And they're going to start asking questions. And it's, it's better to, I would say, clam up. And some people think, well, isn't that going to make me look bad? Aren't they going to think, well, why would I ask for an attorney right away if I didn't do it? Um, that's just being smart. That's just being smart because you don't want to talk to police and start op answering questions that you might not know is actually digging you in a deeper hole. Right. Or an attorney might be able to catch that, uh, at least if they know you a little bit and they know a little bit of the facts, they're at least going to be able to prevent that from even happening. Right. And this is a good segue into um, letting all the viewers know how, what's the best way to get in touch with you? And we'll put all your information up at the bottom of the video, but if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have a website. It's uh, mark uh, at mgallerlaw.com. Uh, my phone number is 708-406-9797. Um, I answer texts all hours of the day. Uh, if you would like to set up a phone call, um, in-person meeting. My office is in uh, downtown Oak Park at 1010 Lake Street. Uh, it's floor unit uh, number two. Um, but yeah, I, I, I answer texts and calls all day. You can go to my website, check out the information there. I've got different information on, on all various crimes and activities, what you should do in certain circumstances. And there is actually an inquiry form you can fill out, uh, which will lead right directly to um, either my uh, computer or my phone, and I can help answer any questions right away that you might have, um, and I'd be happy to do so. Awesome. All right, before we finish, I'd like to do a couple of rapid-fire questions here with you. Uh, tell me, what's your uh, favorite animal? Cheetah. Cheetah? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, how about your favorite app? Favorite app? Yeah. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I would have to say my favorite app... Uh, what do you use the most? Boy, I would like to say... I use I honestly use Facebook a lot for for news purposes. Okay, sounds good. Uh, what's your perfect uh, vacation? Ooh, somewhere somewhere in Italy. Uh, I love I love uh, Tuscany. Somewhere where we can drink some wine, and eat some good food. And uh, what is your favorite food? Favorite food is I'd gotta say pasta. Sounds good. A meat pasta. Okay. Uh, how would you finish this sentence? Weekends are for uh, relaxing. Okay. I think, I think that's what I have on my bio. Uh, someone, uh, my other guest who was here, Melissa, said, when I said, you know, tell me how to finish this sentence, weekends are for, and she said, I'd have a different answer for you if you asked me a few years ago, but she said, now it's working. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah, what weekends sure. Are for. It's a good um, problem to have. So last one, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? An astronaut. Wow. If I was smart enough, too. That's also, <laughs> that was also the problem. <laughs> so you realized you weren't smart enough and then went to law school, right? I couldn't do math. I, I, I was terrible at, at all forms of math. And yeah, so then I went to law school. Perfect. Well, this has been great. Uh, like I said, I um, when I started doing these video podcasts, I knew I'd have someone on to talk about uh, criminal law early on. I find this super interesting. I think it's something that everyone should want to know about. Um, and so I appreciate you coming on. Uh, answering all my questions. I think it's uh, helpful for, you know, just everyone in general to know what criminal law is all about. Uh, so this has been great. I, um, I appreciate you coming on, giving your contact information out in case anyone wants to get in touch with you. And uh, stay tuned uh, for our next podcast. And thank you so much, Mike, for having me on. I really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank I you. appreciate it.